women at work. We women in industry are a vital part of the bulwark of national strength. Hello everyone and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast, a Castbox original show. I'm Matthew House Barbie and I'm joined by my co-host Austin Knight. Hey Matt and hello to everyone listening. Austin, did you know this is actually our 20th episode now that we've recorded on the podcast? <laughs> that is crazy. It, it honestly feels like it was just a few weeks ago that uh, we released our first series and since then we've gotten to talk to so many incredible people. It does. Those those hours spent with lots of coffee locked inside a recording room, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they, they feel only a few days ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, this is actually a great opportunity to thank all of our listeners for the support. We've had so many nice emails, uh, which has been great. We've had some great reviews in particular on Apple Podcasts, and we've had a ton of subscribers on the CastBox app. And Honestly, this is the stuff that keeps us motivated to to keep recording. Myself and Austin, I'm not getting paid to do this. Like we're we're doing this because we're passionate about it, and I think that there is a lot of people listening that want to hear information about this. So yeah, I I, I really do want to thank all of our listeners for the support so far. Yeah, we really appreciate it. It's also worth mentioning, if you haven't actually subscribed to the podcast yet, go do that now so that you never miss out on any new episodes because we've got a bunch of awesome stuff coming down the pipeline. Yeah, we really do. And if you haven't downloaded the CastBox app and you're looking for an awesome app to stay up to date with all of the different podcasts that you listen to, go check it out on Apple or Android. And once you've downloaded it, make sure you subscribe to us there too. So All you need to do is search for the Decrypting Crypto Podcast, click the little orange subscribe button, and honestly, that'll help us out a ton. Yeah, and as Matt mentioned, we do get a lot of great emails from our listeners. So if you want to ask myself or Matt a question, you can email us anytime at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. Yeah, we do our best to come back to any email as quickly as possible. We we do our best there. And honestly, any feedback is always welcome. Yep. So on to today's topic of discussion, consensus. And to be clear, we're talking about consensus protocols, not the company consensus. Right. They're two completely different things. And consensus protocols have actually come up in the podcast quite a lot. Uh, If any of you listening tuned into our episode on mining in series one, you'll have a pretty basic grasp of what these actually are. Um, I I seem to remember we talked quite a lot at the time about proof of work during that episode. Yeah, we dug into that a lot in our episode focused on the long-term challenges with Bitcoin, Uh, in particular, how much energy it consumes and how that was especially getting out of hand as the crypto values were going up. Yeah, I remember that. There's actually been a lot of talk on the energy consumption of -of proof-of-work-based blockchains recently. And as we mentioned, for a lot of last year there were. But uh, we, we actually shared a few recent articles in our weekly newsletter, and one of those was... It was that one from The Guardian, right? Yeah, that was the one where they claimed that Bitcoin uses as much CO2 a year as 1 million transatlantic flights, right? 
<laughs> just just a few flights uh yeah and i i think we mentioned this before maybe even actually in that mining episode where at the end of 2017 bitcoin was using more energy than the entire country of ireland so that's not exactly a stat that's going to get climate change activists particularly excited i would imagine <laughs> not at all but on the flip side there's been a lot of arguments coming from the other side of things. Uh, a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh published a study that we will link to uh, saying that we don't need to worry about Bitcoin's energy usage. One of the stats from that study was that banks actually use three times the amount of energy than Bitcoin does. Now, whether that's a compelling argument or not is another thing, because I'm sure that you could <laughs> argue that banks aren't exactly the most innovative entities in the world either. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is just one more reason for us all to hate on banks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in all honesty, like it does bring up a good point, right? It's it's really tough actually to cut through the bias in a lot of studies being released like this. Um, it's difficult to know the motives, vested interests of the people running them, and that's that's not to actually say that in this specific case that that is what we're talking about, but. I think this is more a challenge in the blockchain space overall. Well, it's definitely the case uh, when it comes to people promoting ICOs, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone will argue with that. And uh, on the note of blockchain studies, we've managed to get two special guests to join us on the show today. We're really excited about this. They have spent a lot of their time compiling academic research around consensus protocols. Yeah, and it's worth actually pointing out that this aspect of blockchain technology is particularly technical. And a lot of people, I think ourselves included, right, will probably struggle to get our head around some of the final details. So if you find yourself scratching your head a little bit, don't worry. That's why we've brought in the experts so they can dumb it all down for us. <laughs> <laughs> They're not the only reason that they can do that is because they are true experts in this and and they know how to talk about this in a way that us lay people can understand. So uh, we're we're really excited to to learn more throughout this episode ourselves even. Uh, so without further ado, today we are speaking with Alexis Galba and Aparna Krishnan, the co-founders of Mechanism Labs. They've been doing research into alternative consensus protocols that we think could solve some of the scaling problems that we've been talking about for this entire show. Yeah. And let's see, Austin, how far we can actually get before we start getting confused. <laughs> So, Alexis, Apana, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise. to be here. That's great. So, why don't we start off by just giving our listeners a, a bit of a high-level overview of the company that you're both founding members of, Mechanism Labs, a little bit about how it came to pass initially, and also the vision for, for what you want to do there at the company. Yeah, Absolutely. So Mechanism Labs is an open source set of experiments focused on pushing forward research in the blockchain space through increased accessibility. Uh, these different experiments range from survey of knowledge papers to curation of open problems in the blockchain space to rethinking incentives in existing peer review processes through a live journal 
or even like revisiting economic incentives for the way that we currently employ patents. In the long term, of course, Mechanism Labs aims to enable sustainable open source research, leading to tangible output and optimization across all levels of the blockchain stack. So to give you an overview of some of our experiments, the meta-analysis paper that we previously wrote provides a framework for thinking about critical topics in the blockchain space. We've currently written one on alternative consensus protocols and created a framework to compare different proof of stake using protocols and then you conducted an analysis of these different protocols within this framework. We want to do the same survey of knowledge type papers around scalability, governance, privacy, etc. We will also be working more closely with projects in the space for all of our future works. So for the first meta-analysis, we basically had every project peer review their section to ensure the highest quality and accuracy of content. And, uh, and Apana, sorry to jump in there, just when you talk about the, the peer review piece, we're talking about the individual like blockchain projects that have been included in your research. They, they get a chance to look through all of your findings and things like that. Exactly. So if Definity has a section in our paper, they went through their section and ensured that we represented them accurately within this framework. And we tried to do that for every single protocol that we talked about. Got it. And did you have any challenges when you were kind of going through and showing some of the research where they're mentioned? Was there any challenge in even just getting responses from people? Were people less less into giving positive feedback or anything along those lines? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think we faced different kinds of challenges. One was even getting through to a lot of these people. The second challenge that we faced was a lot of these works are now companies and because of that there's this like iffy line of what's proprietary information what they can have in the open what they're comfortable sharing so a lot of them were a little hesitant the first time around another challenge that we faced was that a lot of this research is happening at a crazy pace that for companies to say, okay, we're going to pause right here and review all the work before this is a little bit like saying that we're not doing any work after this. But (laughs) a lot of this is still like very early building blocks to future work. So figuring out what that good line for people to pause and say, we're going to review this and have this amount of work within the framework was quite challenging. Yeah, I think the discrepancy is that this is really an academic paper and we were reviewing academic works. But in the process, a lot of people started to take their academic works and make them more business oriented, which meant that looking at things from an academic peer review perspective became somewhat conflated with the, those who were, who were starting those, those kinds of projects. The cool thing about the blockchain space, though, is I think that there are a lot of these companies that are trying to maintain that academic rigor and try to maintain that kind of like fair peer review ethos and mentality. And so we were able to see kind of both sides of that. Right. So one of the things that I heard you mention is that you're working on research into alternative consensus protocols, big words there. Uh, Before we dive into that, could you briefly explain (laughs) to our listeners what a consensus protocol actually is? Yeah, of course. 
So at a very high level, a consensus protocol is just a way for like different nodes in the network to come to agreement. Now, there are lots of ways to do it. If you think about it intuitively, maybe everyone just talks to everyone. But the moment you add different constraints, like, oh, well, we want this consensus protocol to be scalable, which means only some subset of people should be talking to other subsets of people. Or we want different nodes to be able to leave and join in the system. Adding in these different constraints is what makes it hard to come to agreement because who the nodes are in the system is constantly changing. Who can talk to who is also quite limited if you want scalability. So, yeah, that's basically the challenging part of creating a consensus protocol. Yeah, we we dug into mining in particular in the first series of our podcast and obviously consensus protocols are a, a fundamental part of a lot of that, especially in proof of work. And we, we touched a bit on consensus, but didn't really dig in too much. And I know that considering the fact that you're both very much focused on finding alternatives to some of the more popular or at least widespread consensus protocols right now, like proof of work, proof of stake. What, what, what problems do you see are the biggest problems right now with some of the, the more mainstream or popular or most adopted consensus protocols that are out in the space right now? Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to make a slight distinction here and just go ahead and, and talk about some, some terminology. So when we talk about proof of work, we're referring to it as providing us two things. One, civil control, and two, randomness. So civil control in that if I'm trying to go ahead and participate in proof-of-work consensus, it's less optimal for me to split myself up into multiple different actors versus just be one actor. And so proof-of-work incentivizes individuals to stay as one actor versus splitting their hash power up into multiple different actors. And then it also provides randomness. And then with proof of stake, what we're getting is this civil control. So if I'm staking all of my funds as one individual, then the hope is that as one actor, I should be able to do better than if I split myself into multiple different actors. Um, so when we talk about what Bitcoin's using as their consensus protocol, we see them using proof of work and the longest chain rule. And, and people often will refer to that whole, whole sort of thing as proof of work. Um, and so with a lot of these alternative consensus protocols we're looking into, their main thing is allowing all of these different nodes to come to agreement and different protocols use proof of work or proof of stake with the majority of them tending to prefer proof of stake, um, especially because the clear issue with proof of work is the environmental impact that it has. With proof of stake, the trade-off there is that it's harder to have as much of a permissionless system. Often it's harder for nodes to join and leave because you're selecting some subset of the stakers, and then you often have bonding and unbonding periods. But this trade-off can allow for increased scalability since you have less nodes coming to agreement at any given time, and still the opportunity for almost anyone to participate in the consensus protocol. Right, I see. And just so I can simplify this down as well for, for our listeners, and please, Alexis, do correct me if uh, this, this is an oversimplification, right? But when we talk about proof of work and you're talking about the incentivization piece of this, ultimately what we're saying with proof of work is that the main 
function that a node uh, or someone that is ultimately participating in the network is is providing is power and computational power, which ultimately results in having more power on the network requires more energy consumption and more resources on your side. Whereas with proof of stake, it's not about energy consumption and computational power, but more you are staking your funds. So it's more about having a larger, ultimately, pool of wealth to, to dictate more power on the network. Would that be a fair simplification or am I yeah. completely off the mark? No, no, I would definitely say that's correct. Got it. And I know one area that it, it comes up a lot with proof of stake is it seems like there are so many different variations of proof of stake as well. Is that something you can maybe elaborate a little bit on too? Because I know with the whole focus of Ethereum moving to proof of stake, there's been so many different variation and hybrids of, of proof of stake. Oh, for sure. For sure. And and this was a huge driver for us to work on the meta-analysis. We were interested in all of these consensus protocols that were using proof of stake and we found that the ways in which they reached agreement were just so fundamentally different. Um, so the factor that's in common is pretty much what you mentioned. You have all of these different nodes putting in a certain amount of wealth into this network, but say the way that those nodes are chosen to participate in some sort of committee for election is very different according to each different protocol. And I think that we can pretty much break most of these protocols down into two larger subsets. So you have your PBFT-esque protocols and your chain-based protocols. So the PBFT protocols would be something like Tendermint, um, where you're guaranteed um, absolute finality of your transactions. So there'll be a leader, there'll be a committee, the leader will propose a transaction, the committee will have to agree upon that transaction, and if you have any kind of dishonesty, the protocol will halt. And in a chain-based protocol, that would be something like Bitcoin. What happens instead is even if there are any kind of conflicting blocks or transactions, you, you have these forks and eventually the longest chain will win out. And the deeper your block is nested into that chain, you get better probabilistic finality. And so we can break these protocols into these two major groups. And within those groups, the ways that they're choosing different people to participate in the protocol are very different. So even if I have a bunch of stakers, the way do I allow everyone who's staked to be a part of the protocol? Do I choose some set subset of those stakers? Do I require those stakers to bond their funds for a particular amount of time? Um, all of those are different variables that these protocols play around with. Great. So beyond proof of work and proof of stake, now that we understand what those are, what alternative consensus protocols are you all most interested in and how do they differ from proof of work and proof of stake? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think beyond proof of stake and proof of work, there are some of these reputation-based systems, which are proof of authority, which uses your personal reputation as the civil control mechanism. There are also all of these different ideas of like proof of burn, proof of space and time. All of these are very interesting. We've not looked into them in depth, but that's primarily because we believe the proof of stake is pretty promising as it stands right now. And the assumption that people are economically rational seems pretty sound as of now. Right. So is, is would it be fair to say that you're more focused on the idea of proof of work not necessarily being an entirely scalable option? And what you're saying here is that some form of proof of stake is the, the right direction to take this in. 
so I would say we're more, more focused on proof of stake. And that's primarily because we believe that it makes some pretty good assumptions about human actors. Uh, of course, I do think there can be other interesting combinations of proof of stake with like proof of authority or like proof of stake with other incentives for human beings. But I think where we are right now is a great start. Yeah. Are there any projects pioneering and exciting new consensus protocols that you're interested in, perhaps in relation to proof of stake or outside of that space? Oh, yeah. So outside of the proof of stake space, I like all the work with proof of space and time. That's quite interesting to me with like Chia.network. I also like hearing about proof of authority as a concept a lot. Are there any projects that you, you've specifically seen that are using some of that technology right now? Yeah, Chia.network. Chia.network, yeah. okay, interesting. And then one thing I will say is that as a trend in general, right now we're seeing a lot of academic blockchains focused on scalability. And when I say academic blockchains, I'm talking about like academics who have been studying distributed systems or cryptography for a while who have now built consensus protocols. So the protocols that we covered in our meta-analysis were Tendermint, Thunderella, Algorand, Definity, Ouroboros Genesis, and then Casper's FFG and CBC. And we did this, this full analysis, which is available on the Mechanism Labs GitHub repo. And one thing that we really are trying to encourage is open source collaboration. So we definitely want anyone to feel free to be making pull requests to add on different consensus protocols and to be able to converse and compare to really understand where the open problems still lie and what kind of trade-offs they're making. Awesome. I'll make sure that we share out the link to the repo within the show notes, actually, and on, on the website. So any of our listeners that are interested in digging into that a little bit more can go through all of that. One of those projects that you mentioned rings a bell with me, actually, the Algorand. I I listened to the the founder. I actually forget his name now, but I've seen him speak a couple of times over here on the East Coast. And he's a, he's a super interesting character. And some of the things that I really first started to have some eureka moments in truly understanding the more technical side of this came from some of his talks, which was great. Yeah, Silvio McCauley has definitely produced some great work. I mean, Turing Award winner. <laughs> <laughs> right. just, a, just a minor award and accolade. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, outside of what what has been quite a technical deep dive so far i wanted to take a little bit of a step back here and, and and shift gears i think some of the things we've talked about is incredibly interesting as you've already alluded to this this is relatively early days and a lot of the work that you're doing could ultimately shape some of the future directions of what is ultimately an emerging technology but i also know that Another thing that both of you are particularly passionate about and also being female co-founders is gender equality and diversity within tech and more in particular in the, the blockchain industry as well. But I wanted to dig in and find out a little bit more insight into what your experience has been working with companies and individuals in the space so far and what your general opinion is on how far away in terms of diversity we are in the space right now? Yeah, for sure. Something I've really appreciated about the blockchain space is that there's a lot of variety in thought and people are very open and very collaborative. 
Um, but I definitely think we still have a long ways to go in terms of diversity in almost every regard. Um, if we want blockchain technology to represent the financial and governance-based infrastructure of the future, I think it's really important that this technology is being built by the diverse global population that it's meant to represent. And so in that vein, I launched She256 with Sarah, Meta, Mashia, and an amazing team at Berkeley this past spring. And our goal is to increase diversity and break down barriers to entry in this space. And it's been really great, the positive reception that, that it's been getting and that people in this space really do seem to care. We have been focusing on women in blockchain thus far. We held what was, I think, the largest women in blockchain conference in the nation to date in the spring. And the focus there was pretty much to showcase the amazing work already done by female researchers and innovators in the space to inspire the next generation. And more recently, we launched a mentorship program. And it, it's been really great to see that people are really interested in that, in building connections, in giving back, in encouraging more and more people from a wide variety of backgrounds to enter this space. And so while I definitely think there's a lot of work to be done, I think there's definitely a good amount of support. And if we, as a, as a collective, prioritize this, I think what's really cool about this space is that we're still in the very, very early days. And so we still have the ability to set a precedent that diversity matters and that it's something that we're going to build this kind of field, but while keeping that in mind. Yeah. So sort of stepping up one level higher uh, in abstraction from that, as we've been running this podcast, we've gotten to speak with some incredibly talented women who are working and running companies focused on blockchain technology. As women running a business, what advice would you give to others that are about to start their journey and maybe want to jump into this space? I would definitely say uh, surround yourself with other men or other successful people who are willing to be supportive of you as a woman and fight for you. I've often noticed that there are certain qualities in women, like women in general tend to be less outspoken or less aggressive than men, um, but they can be given the confidence to do the same. And I would say Zubin, our co-founder, is amazing that way. Like oftentimes when there are situations socially where people look to the man for responses, Zubin will often look at either me or Alexis and try to get us or our input in those situations as well. And I think like having men or having other people who think through and are very aware of these situations is so important when starting out. Like before, before meeting Zubin, I've worked with a lot of guys who like, if in social scenarios, there's a way for them to have their input or me to have my input. They will jump in and have their input in there for sure. But I think like having that sort of support system in terms of your co-founder being so aware and like helpful or other older men mentor figures or other just supportive VCs has been very, very helpful in getting us so far. That's great. I mean, as both myself and Austin as white men in working in tech over the past few years certainly have have seen without feeling the the bias that I'm sure yourself and many other women and also minorities within the the tech space feel very often the 
the bias that happens on a daily basis. And I think sometimes a large part of that can be unconscious, but having leaders that are promoting diversity and actually truly living and breathing that and not just having numbers on a piece of paper to make it sound like they're truly promoting that is is clearly going to help not just in blockchain, not just in tech, but generally in in business, I think. Yeah, I do agree with that. I think especially in the very, very early parts of this new technology, you need people who are hyper aware of it because there are lots of unconscious things that we say or do in social situations which bias women. Like, I remember we used to look for hustlers, but hustling is not a quality that you often associate with a woman, Mm. but it is a quality that in general might come with males. You could have a very similar quality in, in a woman. Maybe she's like persistent, but then just using that term, I want a hustler, um, might often lead to biases and lead to you recruiting less powerful women. Yeah, that is a very good point. I, As someone who I would like to think is someone that promotes diversity as much as possible, I've noticed myself through times just unconscious biases that I was not even aware of. And I think situations like that where you're setting yourself up to, especially within recruitment of new talent, I think the point that you made around the way you even describe people, there are just certain connotations that can be attached to to labels that favor, whether it's one sex, one ethnicity, one certain group of people more than others. And it's going to ultimately filter down across either the rest of your team or company as well when that happens. Yeah. And I do think another very important thing when you're a woman founder is like knowing that these unconscious biases will exist, but being prepared to point out to people when you face them so that they can then learn from those situations and not have it again in the future. Like I was at a conference in India and I was the only female speaker. They had, I think, a host of other male speakers and the way they described me was as this lovely lady versus the way they described other male speakers was very different and I don't think they meant it the wrong way but just making them aware of that unconscious bias was very very helpful because I think now that that lets anyone in the future who hosts a conference like who describes as a woman speaker unconsciously that way think twice before they describe her as lovely and like lay emphasis on how she looks as opposed to who she is as a person. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And you mentioned there actually about addressing biases. Do do you have, either of you have any advice for, because I can imagine that being particularly intimidating, I would imagine in say an office setting where you're working with someone that has done something that's uh, you, you've certainly perceived as having a, a gender bias that maybe they haven't even picked up on and you want to address it with them. Is there any particular advice you would give for someone in that situation where they want to to bring that up with someone? Uh, I would say first understand where the person is coming from and like what their motivations are. Like In this scenario where I face an unconscious bias, I don't think the organizer has even meant it the wrong way. They obviously meant it in a way to highlight women in the blockchain space but 
oftentimes like just understanding where the other person is coming from and then explaining in terms that they can understand helps a long way. Great. I think that's some fantastic advice. I think a lot of our listeners are going to really appreciate that. And just before we wrap things up here, why don't you both let our listeners know where they can find out a little bit more information about the work you're doing at Mechanism Labs and also maybe some of the initiatives you were mentioning around promoting diversity in uh, tech and in the blockchain space and how they can follow you on social media. We'll also make sure we share links in the show notes as well. For sure. Um, You can find more about Mechanism Labs on our website, mechanismlabs.io. And we definitely encourage anyone who's interested in working on a lot of these uh, research projects to hop on the GitHub, start making pull requests, join the Telegram, and engage in those kinds of discussions. Um, There's a lot of other interesting experiments that we're working on as well with regard to like what what Aparna talked about more with the open problems, live journal, and incentive-related work. Um, and then in terms of She256, you can check us out at she256.io. Signups for mentorship are still open and we have a lot of upcoming events. So definitely check that out. Um, and you can catch us on Twitter. I'm at Alexis Gaba. Aparna is at Aparna Locked. Aparna has some very interesting tweets. So I, I definitely recommend. <laughs> <laughs> we won't judge. <laughs> Well, Alexis and Aparna, thank you both for joining us today. This was excellent. It was a pleasure. Thanks both. This has been great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show your appreciation to me and Austin, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or on your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure you download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can finally follow us on Twitter at thecoinoffering. Lastly, but not leastly, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto podcast is a CastBox original show, and its content should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.